This is a Federal News Network podcast. Federal contracting officers and grant managers, heads up. They're on the front lines of the Biden administration's Made in America initiative. Now, that latest guidance from the Office of Management and Budget details the steps they've got to take to carry out that January order. For more, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke in her very first interview since taking the job with the director of OMB's Made in America office, Celeste Drake. Every covered agency must name a senior accountable official for domestic sourcing, and that's a person who will coordinate with the Made in America office to implement the holistic approach to advance the policy set forth in the executive order. Then it gives agencies guidance for what should be in their reports on the use of Made in America laws. And in those reports, they should analyze their current practice regarding Made in America laws and lay out proactive steps that the agency is currently or will soon be taking to strengthen and diversify their domestic supplier bases and create new opportunities for U.S. firms and workers. The third thing is it lays out the waiver review process information that is needed. So when an agency sends a waiver over to the agency for review, for non-availability waivers from procurement, it lists the information that needs to be included. And for Jones Act waivers, it lists the information that needs to be included. And that is actually going to build out as we include more and more waivers in the review process. And then finally, the guidance includes a lot of information about how we're building transparency into the waiver review process. And in particular, under Section 6 of the executive order, talks about how the GSA is already taking steps to build a public website that is going to make new opportunities for American businesses clearer and help more firms access federal contracting. The senior accountable official for domestic sourcing, is that likely going to be their chief procurement officer or someone in the procurement field? Or is it? Or are you seeing some agencies naming people outside of, of their main procurement office to handle these responsibilities? Some are naming their uh, SPE, senior procurement executives, others, their CAOs, chief acquisition officers, Others, it's CFOs. Other times, it's somebody a little higher up in the the chain under the secretary's office. And really, it's going to depend on the agency. If it's an agency that does a lot of grant making, and they're really going to be looking at the waivers from Buy America laws in their grants, then it makes sense to have someone who's really understands the nitty-gritty of the grant making. If it's an agency that does primarily procurement, then it makes a lot of sense to have someone who is really overseeing the management of how that procurement happens. And so what we want to do is have the agencies be able to choose for themselves who is this person for us and why it makes sense to have them be the main point of contact with the Made in America office. Let's talk about the waiver process because I think this is the thing that stood out to myself and among others in the procurement and, and acquisition communities because we we know that there already are laws that say like the, the Trade Agreements Act or the Buy American Act or the Barry Amendment that are really focused on ensuring agencies buy from American-made manufacturers, domestic sources. But it seems like that maybe there are some concerns about the waiver process that either they were incomplete or weren't used. What is the, the administration's concern 
before the EO maybe or, or as the EO is being developed that put this big focus on the waiver process? The Biden-Harris administration is leading on Made in America by instituting this first ever government-wide waiver review process. And the executive order makes agencies accountable for their implementation and compliance with Made in America laws and establishes the Made in America office to lead these efforts. And these steps we believe are already having an impact by getting that focused high level attention on waivers. And we are bringing this whole of government approach to strengthen Made in America implementation and require agencies to continually review their processes and setting the stage for real concrete improvements. Probably the public's most pressing concern is that they don't have insight into the waiver process and the centralized process and the transparency is aiming to fix that. The public doesn't know how hard contracting officers do work to comply with the Buy American Act and how hard they do work to identify suppliers. And by making sure that waivers are transparent and available to the public, we will ensure that domestic firms have an opportunity to find and fill gaps in the U.S. supply chain. By analyzing the data we collect, we can help improve policies for domestic firms and workers as we work to build the economy back better. And finally, just by establishing the centralized transparent website, we will help establish public trust that this isn't merely a compliance exercise, but an important priority of the Biden-Harris administration. When you looked at previous waivers and you looked at what's out there and what's available, were there none or were the waivers there but hard to find or incomplete? What was it about the waivers that this administration said we need to do better on? If you are familiar with the federal procurement data system, you can go in there and find a, a lot of answers. So in many cases, the information is there, but it wasn't necessarily available in a public website that's a one-stop shop. Because when the waivers and the transparent website is fully built out, it won't be only the procurement waivers, but it will also be the waivers from federal assistance, the waivers from the Jones Act, and we're going to try to present it in a way that is up to date and that is easy to use so that we can use it as we think about how do we improve Made in America policies, but also firms that want to do business with the U.S. government can find a one-stop shop and identify, hey, wait a minute, a waiver was issued for green widgets. We can make green widgets and they won't have to go to a multiplicity of websites to get the information they're looking for. How is your office starting to look at the technology piece? Because, you know, by whether it's computers or handheld devices or whatever, those tend to be foreign made or at least made in foreign places. How are you looking at the technology challenges for Made in America? The executive order requires the FAR Council, among other things, to report on existing constraints that might be preventing the extension of Made in America requirements to commercial information technology and to develop recommendations for addressing those constraints. The executive order identifies the need to make strategic investments to build domestic supply chain capacity 
For instance, as in silicon chips, and as we continue to implement the executive order, we're looking ahead to how we can work together with the critical supply chain goals and how we can support domestic IT while ensuring that all agencies have the best access to the most innovative goods, regardless of their source from around the world. Celeste Drake is director of the Made in America office in the Office of Management and Budget, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about, but that's should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change situations change and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. 
And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, <clears throat> I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. 
they're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Will you and everyone you work with lose their minds if you don't use Upwork to bring in more talent to help? Yep. Can you afford to spend months finding that talent the old-fashioned way? Nope. Can you hire them in seconds on Upwork? Yep. Is it complicated? Nope. Can you have them as long as you need? Yep. Longer than you need? Nope. Is Upwork a newer, better way to work? Yep. Is this commercial over? Nope. What about now? Yep. Upwork, this is how we work now.